Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I provide online divorce mediation and valuation services in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, we will discuss business valuations and changes in the IRS for 2022 with a former IRS auditor, Mike Gregory. Mike Gregory is the founder and owner of Mike Gregory Consulting, LLC. He brings 28 years of experience with the IRS in a variety of uh, capacities. During his last 11 years with the IRS, he was an IRS territory manager with responsibilities for up to 23 states, with an emphasis in business valuation and specialist issues nationally. He also was involved with creating and talking to the IRS about the discounts for lack of marketability um, and also reasonable compensation. Um, The other book that he has written is called The Collaboration Effect, which basically brings together neuroscience um, and kind of negotiation techniques in order for you to work with the IRS if you needed to in some capacity. Welcome, Mike Gregory. How are you? I am great. Thank you very much, Melissa. Well, we are obviously talking to an expert on the IRS and really in the business valuation community. Um, some of the things that we get concerned about is creating these estate valuations and providing them to either attorneys or clients, and then they utilize them in a tax return when they're doing gifting or other strategic planning. But a couple things that we don't always know what's happening is how the IRS views some of these business valuations and kind of what triggers them to take a closer look, right? Because that's not really what we want them to do. Um, So what are the few of the changes that you can, or we can expect to see that you've kind of identified in the IRS related to business valuations that's coming down the pipeline for 2022? Well, first of all, I want to say the IRS has a goal to do a quality audit. The quality audit is defined in the Internal Revenue Manual. The IRS also tells Congress each year they're going to do a certain quantity of returns, so a certain number of estate tax returns by different sizes or gift tax returns. Now, they used to publish that and let the public know that until 2014. Since then, they haven't shared that with the public ahead of time, but every year they come up with the IRS data book, and it says, this is what we did the previous year, and I'm going to share some statistics out of that. The IRS also has identified for the Small Business Self-Employed Division, which is where the estate and gift tax program is, issues they're planning to focus on in 2022. That's the year from October 1, 2021 through September 30th of 2022. And they've said they're going to focus on reasonable compensation issues, issues associated with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, and then various 1120S, 1120, and partnership activity codes. Uh, there's a tie-in with estate and gifts with LBNI, Large Business and International Division, and they've said in there they're going to focus on S-Corp distributions, S-Corp losses greater than basis, partnerships, built-in gains, and they have issue practice networks on different issues related to valuation, including reasonable compensation. Well, with the IRS taking a look at 2022 on estate and gifts, they have some real issues here. It used to be you filed these returns on paper, and they were sent to the Cincinnati Service Center, which is in Covington, Kentucky. had about 3,000 employees there. That's closed down, and they've transferred all that to the Kansas City Service Center. Well, 
about a thousand of the people who were in Covington, Kentucky are still there. And historically in Covington, Kentucky, I had five different business valuers located across the, uh, the river in Cincinnati and one in Louisville. And two of those people would have gone to the Cincinnati Service Center about once every two weeks to once every two months, depending on how many estate and or gift tax returns came in. And two attorneys would have shown up from somewhere USA. And those, that group of four would have looked at the most recent ones that came in and looking at some classification techniques, which are continually changing depending on the number of returns that come in. They would be identifying which ones were identified nationally for classification. If the attorneys came from, for example, Missouri, they wouldn't classify any returns from Missouri. They want this to be kind of a blind classification process. But it's a demand pull process. Demand meaning the local estate and gift tax manager, let's say in Chicago, would say, I need 400 returns. And they would come with this national classification. If there were 400 returns for Illinois, they would give them those 400 returns. If there were 300 that met the current national classification process, they might only get 300 and 100 could come from anywhere USA. Well. That group that came in, they did this by hand because we're still filing these returns on paper. When we shifted to the Kansas City Service Center, they didn't bring the people with them. And Kansas City doesn't have any valuers in Kansas City anymore. So they put together an algorithm to try and address this. And I'm going to share some statistics with you here in a little bit about how well that algorithm is or isn't working and some dysfunction with the IRS here too. So the current process nationally has some problems. And if it makes it through the national classification process, there's a local classification process. And those folks are looking for some specific issues. And they have found that historically on looking at issues, there are a number of things that uh, rise to the top. Starts off with discounts for lack of marketability and various discounts, discounts for lack of control. They wanna make sure you have the right standard of value, that is fair market value. They're looking at tax affecting on S-Corps. I'm gonna share a court case with you here, uh, several court cases with you here in a little bit. They talk about math errors, and I'd say one out of every three appraisals, they find math errors in. It wasn't intentional, but sometimes the appraisers haven't updated the spreadsheet with what they intended, so the numbers don't necessarily add up. Sometimes that's not material. Most of the time it's not, but sometimes they can be. And then they're looking for a strong narrative. You need to tell a story. It's one of the biggest things. Tell a story that makes sense. And the larger the taxpayer, the, uh, the larger the larger of the estate, I should say, or the gift, the higher probability of an audit. And it needs to be logical. The report needs to follow its standards. You need to have documentation. That gets into information document requests. And the three most common areas are discounts for lack of marketability, reasonable compensation, and tax affecting on escorts. Those are the three biggest issues. Now, what is the, you said that the IRS issues out kind of the report from the past year. What is the name of that? Like, can regular people have access to it too? Yeah, it's not written for you. Okay. <laughs> for me, it's the IRS data book. Okay. So I go and I look at the IRS data book and I take several tables out of there. Mm. And I put these together in uh, some documentation. Hang on a second. I have a PowerPoint that I'm just going to bring something up in here and just share with you some overall observations from uh, what I have in this spreadsheet. Just a second, here we are. If you were to take a look at the percentage of, return, percentage of returns that were audited in 2018, broad statistic, estates were about 8.2% and gifts were about 0.8%. Hmm. In 2019, this dropped by about a third. The states were 6.9%, but gifts remained the same about 0.8%. And if we break them up, they broke them up into less than 5 million, 5 to 10 million, and greater than 10 million for estates. 
So in 2019, for estates less than 5 million, they audited to 2%. For 5 to 10 million, they audited 9.2%. And for estates over 10 million, they audited 21.7%. Overall, 6.9%. Uh, now you have to understand, a lot of estates are just very simple in the sense that they're real property, they have uh, liquid assets, they have mutual funds, they have stocks, they have bonds, and those things are pretty straightforward with public stocks. It's the ones that have closely held firms with them. That's that's the overall number that I just gave you, but clearly the ones that have issues that I've just mentioned, that's the ones we're gonna take a, a greater look at. But now I'm looking at another table here. And when we get to 2020, I don't get the breakout anymore by less than 5 million, five to 10 million, greater than 10 million. I just have a state's total. So listen to this in terms of the number of estates. In 2018, there were 33,000. That's been pretty standard, 32 to 34,000. In 2019, it dropped to 26,000. In 2020, it dropped to 15,000. That's half. What do you think? Are less people dying? Uh, I don't think so. And here's another statistic. The average amount of tax from 2020 on, on estate tax returns was about 264,000. For over 10 million, it was around 408,000. But the average refund used to be about 10% of the uh, tax from the return originally. Well, this is phenomenal. In 2020, the average refund on greater than 10 million was $502,000. The average refund for all estates was $365,000. That's a lot of money. It's a very big difference. So I, I took this information. I went back to my friends at the IRS and I said, what's going on? And they said, there's several things going on here. One is COVID. COVID says you don't go to the tax rate. You don't go and look at these returns by hand. You put in these algorithms. So things that folks would have looked at by hand and said, I think there's something here. This doesn't make sense or whatever. They put together some algorithms. How well are those working? Maybe not the best. <laughs> Second item, the IRS at one point said on their, at their service centers, they had 21.7 million pieces of mail that weren't open. How do you file an estate tax return? By paper. They're sitting on trucks. Now they've worked their way through this. They're, they're now down, they say, to about 3 million pieces of mail. But just think about that. They've gone from 21 million to 3 million. So a big issue is they haven't even opened the returns to get them into the system. That's another issue. Another issue is management is not on site. If you're an auditor for the IRS, if you have a no change, you need to explain that to your boss because you want to explain why there's no change here. You want to make that decision as quickly as possible. If you spend a lot of time on a case and it's a no change, we really want to understand what's going on. Why do we waste our time there? But if I give you a refund, uh, they don't really care. So if you're an auditor and you don't want to have no changes, you can say to the taxpayer, what are you asking for? Okay, well, maybe I can give you this no change. We can get it out of my inventory a lot quicker. And the goal is to close cases. They're not evaluated on dollars or dollars per hour. That's actually against the law but they are evaluated on case closure. So if I can get a close out and you agree with me and it's a refund, you're okay. And also think about COVID too in the alternative valuation date. The firm may have been worth, worth X, but now COVID hit. And what's that estate worth today? And it's a lot worse because some businesses really were hurting, right? right. So all these things are entering into this. Really don't know why. Those are different theories as to why, but the stats tell us there's something going on at the IRS and it's not healthy. 
Well, and the percentages that you gave, it seemed like, because you delineated them as estates or gifting. And so in our world, one of them's a gift, one of them's sort of a death, I guess, of the, you know, of somebody in the estate. But it seemed like more often they were looking at the decedent estate issues than the gift tax. And everybody gets really more concerned, I think, about the gift tax, but maybe, maybe not. Well, on the gift on the gift area, I'm just looking at statistics here now. In 2018, 245,000. 2019, 240,000. 2020, 158,000. So they've really dropped off here too. I think that's again back to these mail trucks. I don't know that, mm -hmm. but I think that's a, a the the gift area has been running consistently with their numbers historically. So that 240,000 number is pretty. If I looked at all the way back to 2013, that's kind of normal. So the 158,000 in 2020, that's really odd. Uh, but most gift tax returns actually, again, we're business valuers. We, th we think because we're business valuers, most gift tax returns have closely held firms in them. Actually, most gift tax returns are stocks and mm -hmm. bonds and cash or cash equivalents. So they're pretty straightforward. There's not a lot to audit there. I mean, an, an agent can look at this and say, yep, okay. Here's the stock for ABC Corporations on the New York Stock Exchange. It was as of that date. That's what it was valued at. And there you go. So mm -hmm. that's the bulk of them. Very high percentage, around 95%, something like that, 90, 95%. So you're really talking about 5% of all those, which if you look at uh, the number that are being audited, you've really got about a 5% chance of all of those being audited. So it's pretty small. But again, size matters. So the larger gifts have a higher probability of being audited than the smaller gifts. Hmm. Okay. Well, and, and I think that we've kind of talked a little bit about this. You identified the main issues, but you know, when I was a younger valuator, we'd be like, oh, okay, as long as the, the discount for lack of marketability and the discount for lack of control in total, isn't more than like 50% of the entity, unless you have extenuating circumstances, like you'll be fine. But the has the IRS identified the issues for the audits of business valuations in 2022, other than I think you've talked about three of them, but maybe we need to talk about them in a little bit more detail, right? First of all, there is no one IRS. Okay. The IRS is made up of individuals. And the IRS in 2020 became functional by different stovepipes. We're now in 2021, almost 2022. They don't talk across the stovepipes. The valuers cut across the stovepipes. Okay. But the folks in the state and gift, they're in their own little stovepipe. Okay. Having said that, when I was at the service and I had a business valuation, I got reports. I could look up any case in the country and see what the status was, how many staff days or hours have been spent, uh, how many more expected to be spent. I get a little blurb of the status of the case. Um, I get a number of different statistics and I could look at any information document request or any proposed adjustment all on this big system. Well, that was too much. So we put together reports that I could pull that together to say, here's one that looks odd. I want to just find out what's going on there. Or I would do operation reviews of my managers and find out what's going on here. Well, having said that, they don't even have people to put the reports together anymore. Mm -hmm. So nobody's looking at them from a big picture. That having been said, I can tell you, I've been in business now 10 years. I worked with the IRS on issues and exam and appeals, and even with counsel across the country. And the culture is very different in Manhattan than it is in St. Louis or out in LA or Dallas or Miami or Seattle. Mm -hmm. 
So now we're talking about whenever I'm involved with an audit, I ask, who is the estate and gift tax attorney? Who's the agent? And where is that person located? And where's their boss? And where are they located? So somebody in St. Louis, Missouri may have a boss that's in Los Angeles, just as an example. And then I'll come ask, and I'll ask the business valuer, where are they located? And where is their manager located? And I'm finding out different. I, I ran into a case, I'll just say on the West Coast, where one of the valuers said, I don't allow DLOMs over 20%. I was, you don't allow DLOMs over 20%? And I'm just, I'm actually mediating here between the IRS and the taxpayer. And I said, are you aware of the IRS job aid? Because I championed that. And actually, this person worked on it. <laughs> and he says, yes, I am. And I said, now, what does the IRS job aid say about DLOMs? Well, there isn't any maximum or minimum on a DLOM. It's all factual based. So I took the appraiser's appraisal and I asked questions of the appraiser. And I want to make sure the estate and gift tax attorney and the estate and gift tax attorney's manager are there because they're the real decision makers. The valuers are consultants. They don't control the case. And as I asked questions, uh, there's a partnership here. And one of the elements was this partnership had been in business for 11 years. They've never made a distribution. Just think about that. Never made. A, are they ever going to make a distribution? Who wants to buy in on a partnership that's never given a distribution and never plans to give a distribution as far as we can tell? Okay. So I ran through something called the Mandelbaum factors. And then I looked at the IRS job aid and they have 33 factors. Mandelbaum has 10, 9 or 10, depending on what you call a factor. And then the IRS job aid is a total of 33. So I pulled up eight more items out of the job aid and I pulled up some re real key items like this distribution element. And I ran through, well, you know, I'm just talking to the estate and gift tax attorney and that value. And I said, if I understand risk, you know, you have a choice. You can buy a stock like McDonald's and I can get my money back in three days. Or I could buy into a C-Corp. And if there is a distribution, I get it. And then I can pay the taxes because I received that. If I have this 1120S type entity, then even if there is no distribution, I have to pay taxes, right? And here I am with something that hasn't even made any distributions and doesn't plan to. Wouldn't you think that might be higher risk? Now, I'm saying that not to play to the valuer who knows the answer to that, but so the estate and gift tax attorney and the estate and gift tax manager can hear those questions. So after I asked a bunch of questions, this IRS valuer says at one point, I'm just going to wash my hands of this. You know, estate and gift tax attorney and estate and gift tax manager, you can do whatever you want on this case. Okay. But he started off with it can't be over 20%. Well, as a result of that discussion, the valuers are now all gone for the taxpayer and for the IRS. And now my client, who's an estate and gift tax attorney, is now talking with the IRS agent and the manager. And comes through with, these are what I heard as some of the key points. Then help the person go through the key points. And then they said, we'd like to close this with you. And I think from what you heard, 20% did not seem reasonable. And we put 35% on the return and we have how we got to that 35% and we went over all those elements with this Mandelbaum case and then some additional factors. Well, we really think it should be around 35%. Can we find some way to work this out? And the state and gift tax vote said, we can't offer you uh, a proposal, but you can offer us a proposal. Well, could you live with 34%? To which the IRS said, we can agree to that. So it was a 1% change on the DLOM. There was, it wasn't a no change. There was right. a 1% change. So there was a change there, uh, resulting in some additional amount of, of estate tax in here. That's an example. And they worked it out. But that's an example of the valuer who was, in my mind, not reasonable. But I never wanted to say you weren't reasonable. I just wanted to understand where you're coming from and why. And then I want to ask other questions about their appraiser. Where were they coming from and why? 
And then we asked, did you consider some of these other things at that time? They wrote the report, they said, I hadn't considered those things. So we brought those into the discussion too. And all these are being listened to. You want to present it in a way that's not ever attacking. It's emotionally, I'm trying to help, seeing if we can reach an agreement on this. And the decision maker has to understand what you're doing. It's not the, it's not the business valuer. It's not the business valuer's manager. It's the estate and gift tax attorney and the estate and gift tax attorney's manager. With the IRS. With right. The, yeah. With the IRS. Right. Right. Well, and it goes back to a couple of things because obviously we've we've known each other for a while and I've heard you speak on several occasions. And, you know, you've talked about it even in the valuation report to have like a page at the beginning. And I think a lot of people do like letter reports where you have the letter that summarizes what the valuation is, and then maybe you have a one page, but you've actually said to have like a one page summary that really encapsulates, which a lot of people do, but I think it's worth reiterating that the more that you can help guide the IRS, and if you're just going to go in there and say, okay, I have a 35% discount for lack of marketability, and that's it accept it, you know, that's not going to get you much further. Um, but if you have a summary, so what are some of the things and, and I think, well, first let's start with one thing that we've talked about, which is, um, an IDR. So what is an IDR or an information document request and how does it relate to business valuation? Cause I think that will kind of lead us into some thoughts in the report that could help support, but, but this is first kind of a, a document request from the IRS, right? Yes. The, the IRS has your report. It should have been attached to the return. So if you ever do an evaluation on an estate or gift, ask them to attach that to the return. This and I, I will even make sure because I think that is an important piece for the business valuation expert. You see, that'll help reduce your probability of an audit because if, if you are a qualified appraiser, so you have a credential example, uh, and you have a qualified appraisal, you meet the standards of USPAP or NACVA, AICPA, those are two pluses for you. Now, you've heard of three strikes and you're out. Well, this is like three pluses in your safe. Well, there aren't three pluses in your safe, but I've got two pluses for you, qualified okay. appraiser and a qualified appraisal, and it's attached so they can see it. Now, let's say it's gone through classification nationally. Then it comes to a local uh, group, and the local group has a local estate and gift tax attorney and business valuer who look at them now, and they can say, we might know this firm, either the, the business valuation firm, the CPA firm, the estate uh, uh, attorney's firm. Uh, we know uh, elements about this particular firm even, depending on what the firm might be. It might be known locally in the community. And the business managers have some insights they can apply local information now to help determine do we want to audit it. So with these 400 returns that came in, they spend some time on them, go through them, they put them into one of three piles. Yes, I'm going to audit it. I'll audit it if we have time and we're not going to audit it. So the ones that, yes, we're going to audit, they come in and take a look at that. Now, when they take a look at it, they may now have some questions, and that's where an information document request comes in. Then the information document request, they may ask uh, for some different information, whatever, or more detailed information beyond your report, let's say. I want to go into your actual work papers on the discount for lack of marketability. Please provide those. Well, in SBSE, which is where a state and gift is located, they have no policy on information document requests. 
But in the division that's assets over 10 million, that's called Large Business International, they have a policy on information document requests. So I've never had an estate and gift tax attorney say no when I've said, I've had my clients say something like this. Over here in LBNI, they've got this directive. It's a, it's a guide, it's a general IDR procedure. It's out of the Internal Revenue Manual. And in here is an exhibit, 4.46.4-1. Requirements for issuing an IDR. Now, in SPSE, what they typically do is say, I'm asking for this. You give it to me. I look at it. I give you a proposed adjustment. You accept it or not. That's typical SBSE, assets less than $10 million. Listen to this over at LBNI. Listen to this. Starts off with discuss the issue related to the IDR with the taxpayer. What an idea. Let's sit down and talk about it first. What an idea. Second, discuss the information requested related to the issue under consideration and why it's necessary. Mm. Okay. After this consultation with the taxpayer, determine what information will ultimately be requested on the IDR. Okay, now this is what we're going to ask for in the IDR. Ensure it clearly states this. I won't read all this to you, but they need to understand it and accept it and what it is. They might, they might ask you to break it up into several different things, depending on, depending on where information might be located. Only one issue should be addressed on each IDR. Utilize numbers and letters to keep track of them. Don't need to worry about that. And, and then I'll just say, it needs to be clear, needs to be concise. Ensure the, it's customized to the taxpayer. Don't just give pro forma information document requests. And then talk about the time frame as to when this might come back. And I'll always say under promise and over deliver. If I think I can get it to you in two weeks, I might say three weeks or four weeks. Because stuff happens, things come up, and you don't want to be you don't want to be promising things and not deliver. Well, I bring this up to say with the IRS, bring up this process, and it's amazing what can happen when you start to actually sit down and talk about things. Here's what they thought they needed and wanted, and as you describe what happens here and the uniqueness of this uh, given taxpayer situation, it becomes you know maybe I don't actually need that, and what I really need is something else. But that happened because you had a discussion. At the same time. What you're doing, I hope, is you looked up this person ahead of time on, on Google and LinkedIn, and you learned some things about this person, and you want to connect with them because you're sitting down and talking. And you want to connect with them, and then you want to listen to them with what is it they're trying to figure out. I want to give you what you need to help you figure this out. And hopefully, we'll get a no change out of here pretty quick. Hopefully, there aren't any adjustments. But if I've done something wrong, by all means, I want to know what it is and we can correct that. You know, if I've done something wrong, let's get that squared away. A lot of taxpayers approach the IRS like this. Okay, yeah. we're ready for a fight. You're asking me for something. I don't want to give it to you. Or I'm going to give you exactly what you asked for and nothing more. You know, you can do that. You start to build walls. This is not a good thing. But if you work with them, they just have a job to do. They're just trying to do their job. Work with them. That's what an IDR is. And that's how you can work the IDR system. Well, and I guess part of it goes, you know, and we've kind of said, like, is this necessary? Well, the interesting part is I also, so I've never at, had this happen, right? I've never had evaluation that I've done be audited or looked at that I know of, right? So can you even, before we even answer, is the IDR necessary? Because I think it's actually beneficial for the person, you know, because they've identified what they need. Um, 
Is the IRS always going to ask for this? Are they always giving us a document request? No. I also want to comment that generally you as the appraiser don't even know you're being audited. Mm -hmm. Your client is the estate. The estate's being audited. The estate tax attorney, for example, is working with the IRS. That person may be working with me. I might be providing information before the return is filed. I might be providing information on how to work with the IRS. I would say nine times out of 10, you don't even know what's happening. And they're also making decisions on your appraisal with what they're going to concede. And you don't even know what's happening unless you have an engagement letter that says, if this return were to be audited, you need to let me know within 10 days. If the return is being audited and it, it's any questions are on my appraisal, you need to let me know within 10 days. Because no offense, but your client can throw you under the bus and say all kinds of stuff. And you don't even know that's happening. So you might want to be there to be able to defend yourself with the IRS. Now, I ran a litigation group. I had uh, I grew a group from nine people to 21 technical people over three years, and I managed the group for seven years. We had up to 10 to 12 cases docketed at any one given time. And only about 10% of those ever made its way actually going into court. And many of those were actually settled on the courthouse steps, so to speak, the, the day of trial. Having said that, having said that, I'm coming back and saying, very few of these cases ever make their way to court. They get settled well beforehand. They, get, they are resolved on exam. They're settled based on the hazards of litigation and appeals, or they're with counsel and they get settled before they actually go to court. Now, that all having been said, what I found is on exam, if you spent X amount of time writing a report for exam, when you go to trial, I hate rules of thumb. Got to say it up front. Rules of thumb, uh, they're all over the place. But as a rule of thumb, I found that if we spend X amount of hours on the initial report, when the case goes to court, we're going to spend at least 5X. Wow. Because, because we need we leave no stone unturned. When you said, you, when you looked at a data set, you said, I took this from uh, done deals or whatever. You have a bunch of comps in there. We go back and actually check every one of those. And when you compare that with another data set, let's say BizComps or something, when you come in and look at other data sets, are they duplicates? Do they have the exact same numbers in there? Why not? Sometimes they have information in there twice. It's not correct. We want to make sure everything we have is right. If you're going to court, you don't want to have somebody bring up something that, uh, I don't know why that is what it is. You want to look like a very competent expert. So a lot more time is spent if you're going to court. So I'm looking at your report that you prepared for exam. You might have thought, well, if I was going to state court, that's fine for state court. I'm going to tell you it's probably not fine for federal court. Mm -hmm. For federal court, you're going to need to spend a lot more time. And in fact, generally, new reports are presented uh, about 32 days before you actually go to court. Because the report that I wrote three years ago, am I still doing things the same way today? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Mm -hmm. Rule 702 says I'm writing the most comprehensive report to help that decision maker, the trier of fact, make a decision. So I'm actually going to write a new report. Is my number going to be the same? No. My number is going to be whatever it is. So I had what, oftentimes you see, this is what they had on their return. And then this is what they had at trial. That's a whole new report. And you used a lot of the same information, but you dug a lot deeper if you're going to court to get a new report. You have to exchange these 30 days before you go to trial, but there's a weekend in there. So that's why I say 32 days. So anyway, minimum. And sometimes... I'm working with the IRS. Taxpayers will come up. This is my appraisal. This is what we're going to do. You're working on this. You're negotiating on that. You think you're getting ready for trial. And all of a sudden, 32 days before trial, by the way, here's my new appraiser. Here's this new report. And here's what they're going to present going into, into court. 
So on the IRS side, it's like, okay, we got a whole new way of trying to address this with this new appraisal or second appraisal or more than one appraiser coming in. So there are a lot of different variables that enter into this. Well, and it, from what you're talking about, though, the more you don't treat it, you know, so just walk me through, like, wh what happens if they flag a valuation? Are they then just sending something to the client, like the, that it's deficient? And that's what triggers all of this to happen? Because it seems like if you're just looking at it as, okay, we did the report, and now the IRS has an issue, and we're going to go to court. Oh, no, There's no. a whole bunch, like this, this could be resolved with some negotiating closer to when it first starts, right? There, there are three different elements, exam, okay. appeals, and collection. Okay. And on exam, they're just trying to obtain the facts and see if they can resolve this on exam. And for a cooperative taxpayer who works reasonably with the taxpayer or works reasonably with the IRS, a very high percentage, maybe 85, 90% are resolved on exam. I don't have a number, but something very high percentage, those are resolved on exam. And you may have questions beyond the initial report. That's the information document request. That's where oftentimes your client, that estate tax attorney, is answering these questions, which they should have gone to you to get an answer for. And they're telling the, uh, the IRS agent, think. I mean, they're doing the best they can, but they right. often just don't want to engage you. That's more money again. That's more time. So they're, they're out to be frugal here, and that's what happens sometimes. I'll say most of the time. And other times they're going to contact you and say, hey, we need something from you. All I need is this. You want me to come and talk with the IRS too? Nope. All I need is just give me that. Just give me that thing, and I'll take that. And I'll go, I will defend you in front of the IRS. That's that's your typical exam. But the case is unagreed, it goes to appeals. Their job is to settle the case based on the hazards of litigation. But this is a factual issue. Valuation is a factual issue. We're not talking about legal elements here associated with the return. That's something the the, uh, the taxpayer's attorney can address legal issues. But on the factual issue, um, that's just trying to see if we can settle this based on the facts up at appeals. And about 85% of those end up being agreed. So your chances now are pretty slim. It's unagreed and going to counsel. And then if it goes to counsel, about 90% of those get settled before you go to court. So the ones that get to court, you're getting to a very small percentage based on what started off on exam. You've had three different slices, about 85, 90% being removed each time before it finally gets to court. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and when we get to court, though, we're either talking tax court and that's a federal case. So do we have any federal cases or tax court cases that are related to the IRS and business valuations that you think are important for everybody to review, especially if you're in this space? And I'm going to make it relatively simple and say there are three. Okay. One is, it's a long one. It's the estate of Michael Jackson, May 3rd, 2021. This is a win for the taxpayer overall. There were three different entities being valued and the appraisers on that were referred to as the dream team. <laughs> the best appraisers out there on these topics and information being presented for the taxpayer. And on the three different issues, I'll just call them issues one, two, and three. On issues one, two, and three, one, the taxpayer won at 97%. Two, the taxpayer won at 100%. Three, the IRS won at 94%. And I'm saying that to you, and then overall the taxpayer won with 68% on what the, the impact was in terms of tax and value. Having said that, 
The key here is that the tax court, U.S. tax court, has said basically one side's going to win. We have to decide which one's more reasonable, and they're going to win. Now, we might tweak it. So 94, 97%, 100%, 94%, those are some small tweaks. But basically, one side wins. That's the Michael Jackson case. Then there are two older cases. The um, uh, uh, state of Gallagher is an excellent case on where the court went through and said, we're trying to understand what you've done, but you haven't written a report for us. You've written a report for another business value. And that's great, but we're not business values. And I have to work with what's in front of me. And I have to understand on how you've written it. So it's a really good critique on what the court wants to see. That's the estate of Gallagher. And then uh, another case that I just want to bring up to you is um, a, a more recent case is the uh, Aaron Jones case. It's the, it's the estate of Aaron U. Jones, August 19th, 2019. By the way, the Gallagher case is June 28th, 2011. Now, I recently made a presentation. I made several different presentations to uh, Business Valuation Resources, AGN International, the ASA International Conference. And I have in front of me 11 cases. And of these 11 cases, I, I'm, I'm just valuing uh, 1120Ss in tax effective. And of these uh, 11 cases, there are seven where the IRS has said you can't tax effect on an 1120S. And there are two of them where the taxpayer won. One is the estate of Aaron U. Jones. In that case, there were two different valuations. And for one of them, the IRS didn't even have a valuation. They showed up in court and said, we should win this because of how we've won on other cases legally. And the court said, if you don't have a valuation, you lose. I'm like, who took this case to court at the IRS? Right. Speaking? The other one is the Crest case. But that's a U.S. District Court case. That's the Eastern uh, District of Wisconsin. So if you're in Milwaukee or Green Bay, this applies to you. But it's not a national case. It's a U.S. District case. And it's K-R-E-S-S, right? I'm sorry? The Crest case is K-R-E-S-S, -S, right? Yes. Yeah. yes. But six of the last cases the IRS has taken to court, they've lost. Mm -hmm. Now, that actually bothers me personally. I, I headed up business valuation for 11 years. On any of the cases that we were involved with, we didn't lose a case. Mm -hmm. 11 years and they've lost their last six in a row so i've actually written a, a letter to the person that heads up this program at the irs and said there's some real issues on these more recent cases uh, one of the cases is called lucero it's a district court case out of new mexico and the irs actually went to court with something called a review with an opinion of value that's what you write on exam an exam you might review a report and say hey i've got an issue issues on the DLAM. so you just write up an issue on the DLAM, saying i'm accepting everything else but that's not an appraisal. If you go to court, you need an appraisal. Well, they went to court, and I know this appraiser personally. He's a good guy out of Denver. So I think management failed here. They had him go to court with the review with an opinion of value, and the court said, what is this? It's, it's a review, and you critiqued one asset, and you said it should be something else, and reality is I give it no credibility. So Iris, you have nothing. So I, we talked about having a qualified appraiser, the qualified appraisal, and you don't have a qualified appraisal. You're in my court. I'm sorry, you lose. I'm like, why did we go to court with this case with mm -hmm. that fact pattern? Well, and I think we've seen it happen in a couple other cases where the IRS didn't support the position or they didn't even introduce the expert that did the work, right? Those were some big cases that we've also seen. But again, a, a lot of this alludes to the fact that we can't just treat some notification from the IRS as like, oh, 
you know, like to be scared or anything like that. It's literally like literally from a business valuation standpoint, we should look at it as they need some clarification. Either the report was not detailed enough or, you know, you took a position. I mean, because valuation people do take positions that are a little bit aggressive, right? So it could be that it just was without outside of that norm. But if we're looking specifically for business valuation experts, what are some things that we should make sure we include or, or, or do in this process? I mean, obviously engaging a mediator or somebody with negotiation training, such as yourself with an IRS background, seems like an amazingly efficient, effective way to deal with it. But what other things should we do as business valuation experts to avoid this IRS audit or exam and and process? Well, in your question, you said we might be aggressive. I would encourage you not to be aggressive. I would encourage you to be reasonable. Like in the Michael Jackson case, the court decided which of these two is more reasonable. I'm going to take that approach with maybe tweaking it, but I'm going to go with the most reasonable. So when I was at the IRS with this litigation group, I said, my, my appraiser would put together an appraisal and I'm now reviewing it. And I would push every assumption inside here. And I want to give the benefit of the doubt to the taxpayer on the assumption. So if we had a range here, I want to say, what's the benefit of the doubt we can give them? What are you most comfortable with? What can, then I'd say, I'm going to ask you some more questions. And I'm going to push you maybe even a lot of your comfort zone. But that's what I did at the IRS. So that we had a reasonable number. The court could say, yeah, you really have sound uh, rationale for whatever variable you chose in your putting together the analysis for this appraisal. So the first thing is you want to be reasonable. That's that's really key. And you want to come across as being reasonable. Then within your report, my commentary, you made this uh, commentary earlier, I review through reports like this for folks, and then I critique them and I, I edit inside with word. Sometimes we use language which can be inflammatory. We don't even realize it is. And sometimes we say things that that's not exactly what we meant. And then I might put comments in here that you can elaborate on this. Like for example, on reconciling the deal on. I'm recommending you have at least three methods. In the job aid, they list about 25. And of that, there are a dozen or so the service recommends. And they critiqued all these methods. And they said what the pros and cons are, and how they've, how they've done in court, a number of different things. So you can take, you use a given method, let's just say the Mandelbaum factors on restricted stocks for deal on. You can come through this and say, on this particular method, I'm giving it either more or less weight. You can look at the IRS job aid for why you'd give it more or why you'd give it less. You can say, that's why I did this. And you have a paragraph on each of those three methods. And then you come back in and you say on the bottom one, now I've taken a look at these three and I've now given the most weight to A and some weight to B and less weight to C. And my overall number is this. They're looking for something like that. A lot of people just have a boilerplate on DLAM. They throw in their boilerplate on methods and they come and say, and my number is this. And the IRS person is going like, well, how did you ever get that? I mean, what did you do? I mean, it's not clear to me. So taking the time to put yourself in their shoes of they don't know you, they don't know anything about your report except what's here, and they've seen a lot of reports. They've done a lot of auditing. So how they would look at it, that's how I look at it. How would they look at it and then put the report together the way they want to see it? It's educating them judiciously the way they, when we went to court, we always reviewed the judge ahead of time, all their cases on anything to do with valuation. And we, we had the judge say, for example, six judges have said, 
I do not like pre-IPO studies for DLAMs. You can get that number to be anything you want. How soon before the actual event, you're going to choose a, a week, two weeks, a month, 90 days, whatever, different dates. And you can get any number you want. So we're not giving that any weight. So I'm in here. That's like putting nails on a, on a chalkboard for a judge. So if six out of the 16 judges have said, I don't want to see that in my court, you know what? We're not going to put that in there because <laughs> we don't want to irritate that judge. Well, that having been said, I'm back in here now with, as you think about your report, you mentioned the one-page summary. I, I had a billion-dollar estate. They had about 100 appraisals. And uh, there were eight different appraisers. And they gave me eight reports that were called, not drafts, but preliminary reports for their client, the attorney. The attorney sent them to me and said, Mike, I want you to go through and critique these. So I'm not doing a review like a formal review for uh, a qualified review, but I'm critiquing them. And I'm writing, I'm putting things in with a Word document, and I'm also putting comments on the side. And I said, these are the things I think you need to do to elaborate on or expound on or clarify this or whatever. Well, that goes in, that comes out of final report. When the final report came back in, I told my client, get all the final reports in and then go back to those eight appraisers and for each one say, give me a one-page summary of that report. So you decide now what's most important. First of all, in this particular appraisal, there is no tax impact. That is, it has no impact on the estate because some appraisal, some some of the things that are in the estate may not be, they're in the estate, but they're not part of the value for estate purposes. So first of all, is there is there a tax impact with this appraisal even being audited? The answer might be no. So you want to say, yes, this has an impact on the estate. And then you ran through what? You, you came through, you said it's a valuation as of a given date, and it's this value for a controlling or non-controlling value. You also said how many shares and the percentages. You're just giving big pictures. And then you said you used three methods, and you, you gave the summary of the three methods. We had an income approach. We made modifications to these four things, whatever that is. And we used a discounted cash flow, and our discount rate was, and our growth rate was. And then you used a market approach. You might have said, we used actual guideline companies. Then we looked at initially 20, we narrowed it to five, and we ended up using four. And this is what we came up with as a market approach. And then you said, we looked at the, um, the cost basis approach. So we looked at the cost basis approach. We came back and said, it's not applicable here. Or you said, it is, and they're actually a real property or a state or a oil and gas or mining appraisals are attached. Because I didn't do that. I'm not an expert in that. Right whatever you did, and then you reconciled and came up with this number. And then you said, we looked at discounts, the DLOC or the DLOM. And here's what I came up with, the DLOC, and I used these methods or this method. And my DLOM, I used these methods, and they gave me this, this, and this, and my final DLOM is that. So my final conclusion of value is something, and it ties into what you just told them at the top. Mm -hmm. you, you say, how much can I get on one page eight and a half by 11? I'm not saying go to a font of eight. Right, right, <laughs> right. Maintain the same font, 11 or 12 or whatever you use. What are the key points? Now, with 100 appraisals, when they classified these things nationally, I can guarantee you for a billion-dollar estate, they looked at every one of these. Mm -hmm. And if you gave them that one-page summary, and the one-page summary, they then checked that one-page summary with the report, and it tied in. Everything in there was right. Well, that says to the national classifier, I can classify these relatively quickly. I've got this information all summarized on this one-page loose that's inside the cover that goes with each one of these. And as a result of that, the national classification, I'm sure, for a billion-dollar estates had sent it off to the local office. And when they got that, the local office, they knew about this. I mean, mm -hmm. billion-dollar people, there's not a lot of them out there. So if this came into St. Louis, you know who your billion-dollar estates are or above. So I'm sure they said, oh, wow, looking forward to this. Let's classify this. 
So the estate and gift tax attorneys there looking at this, and the IRS evaluators looking at this, and they go through and say, it looks okay. It looks okay. It looks okay. They got through all it. I actually know in that particular case with a billion-dollar estate, they were never audited. They were classified twice. And they, I'm sure they looked at the information in there, but they never contacted the estate tax attorney because they said, I have everything I need here, and they appear to be reasonable with what they've done. I've done that with a $500 million estate. So I'm coming back and saying, if you are reasonable and you explain what you've done and others can understand that, you could avoid the whole audit in the first place. And that's, to me, the real key. So any given month, I do one to a half dozen of these. I'm doing, I just did one for someone on the West Coast. I just did one for somebody out of Michigan. I did six of these for somebody out of Michigan. So I'm not just doing that to promote myself, but I'm saying get someone who can understand this. And after you've done one of these, or they've been done, you've had two of these done or three of these done, you got the hang of it now. You, you right. see what is involved to write it as how the IRS looks at it. But I mean, that's, you know, the, the summary is literally the salient, you know, movers of the value, you know, the, the cap rate, the discount rate, the growth rate, the, you know, DLOM or DLOC, all of these are what anybody, including the IRS would want. It's kind of like a cheat sheet, but instead of explaining each piece, just be like, you know, it's just factual. And the interesting part is like, I think it follows factually what the IRS is trying to accomplish. They're trying to make sure that factually it's reasonable or factually it's, it's, it's supported. And then it's reasonable assumptions in the support of that conclusion. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I think that you know, we just sort of default to our current language. And a lot of times it's just adding this one piece, right? And you've even talked about, and you kind of alluded to it just now when you talked about it, but it's literally like a piece of paper that's a summary that goes on top of the report. Like you could still do your report perfectly like you've done it in the past, mm -hmm. but it's that one takeaway sheet that when they get that whole IRS, they don't have, I mean, they you want them to not read the hundred page valuation. You want them to read that one page and be like, yep. Okay. You know, even if you could caveat it by page number, like here's the marketability, you know, we've talked about the three issues or the three ways for marketability discount page four, page 25, page actually, 18. Actually on the summary, I wouldn't even do that. I just no? want high level, but then they can take that one sheet and now what can they do? They can turn to your table of contents. Yes. And yes. that's where this is in the table of contents. So that'll be there. I want to make this so high level that this is really the big picture of the most salient variables that Perfect. you have, your conclusions. And don't even get into the pages. That they can Again, table of contents will have that. I just want to give them a real flavor. Does this seem to be reasonable or not? And then if not, what do I want to look at inside? Well, and I think that this is so like how we how how a business valuation person looks at it may be a little bit different when we have estate planning attorneys or estate tax attorneys, you know, what are a few tips for them? Because they're getting these valuations and quite frankly, a hundred page valuation, 150 page valuation. I don't know. Seems good, right? We paid a bunch of money. These people have credentials. But what are some tips for attorneys that they should be looking at maybe in order to avoid an IRS audit of the business valuation? So I'm actually saying to them, one of the things you need to build into your cost structure is have a third party go over this again. Mm -hmm. So either the, either the business valuer has in their 
um, their estimating process. They left in $2,000 or $3,000 for somebody to critique this for IRS purposes. Or for that attorney, you hire somebody to come in and take a look at your appraisers. But you want to do that on a preliminary appraisal. You don't want to wait till the final appraisal comes in. Right, right. So and you don't, you don't want to be working with drafts. The courts have said certain things relative to drafts. So you don't want drafts. But a preliminary report and sharing that with your, your client is perfectly fine. If your client has then some questions and they want things to be elaborated on, that's the time. And my encouragement to an estate and gift tax attorney is to have somebody do that. Mm-hmm. In this cost of $2,000 or $3,000 to get that done versus having an audit on this thing and the tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars that can be involved with that uh, a year or two years down the line, it says this is tremendous savings plus you can sleep better at night because the chances of this happening are much less now because you've taken this action. So with the attorneys, I'm encouraging them to have another party. Look at the preliminary report. No matter, I don't care if the, and I also would comment, doesn't matter what the name is on that appraisal firm. Something because I've got this name appraisal firm, you're going to be good. Well, I've mediated. I, I do uh, two to four mediations a month. I've been involved with some major appraisal firms. And you've got people doing this work and people who are well-known in our industry that I've been involved with. And you know what? We all make mistakes. Right. You know what? We tend to get egos that I know what I'm doing. I've done so many. I've been to court. I'm the guy. Okay. Well, the reality is when someone comes back and looks at your work from the standpoint of how would the IRS or a court look at it at a federal court level, it's a little bit different animal. And you want to be able to avoid all that by writing this in a way that they can understand. I, generally, I find in almost any report, they have acronyms in there. And mm. oftentimes, they don't say what the acronym is. In some cases, I've, I've had on the order of 50 acronyms in a report. And I said, why don't you put at the end of the report all these acronyms? Just put them in there and say all the acronyms are on page 100 or whatever. And you've also put them in the report. The first time you put in a word and then you have an acronym behind it, you did that in the report. But you might not use that again for 20 pages. When it shows up again, you put the acronym in there. The reader is probably not going to know what that is. So that's not every report do I do that with. But with a report, I came forward and said, you've got so many acronyms in here. I suggest a page back here with just, and then tell them up front, that page has all these acronyms. So when you're going through the report, you might want to reflect on that to help you. If you put yourself in the reader's position, that's the key. And if you, the estate tax attorney, can read it, and you understand it, that's a plus. Now I'm going to ask you, could your support person read it and understand it? And at the IRS, before we went to court, we had a support person always read these. And anything you don't understand, just circle it in red, okay, mark it at the margin or whatever on paper copies back in the day. And then with that, we'd come back and look at it again and say, oh yeah, I can see why. We know what that means. And that, mm-hmm. that's a comment from the Gallagher case I brought up. You knew what it meant. And I was once on a panel in New York City with ASA. And we had the valuer involved with the Gallagher court there. And I'm leading a panel with three experts here. I'm asking them questions. And I said, so to you, what do you think was the biggest issue in your report that the court didn't get? And the guy told me that this one person said what it was. And I said, now, where was that in the report? He had the report there. And he says, well, I'll tell you. And it's right here on page, I'll say 96. It's footnote number 256. It's footnote number 256. I'm making up the numbers, but it was huge. And I was like, so the most important part that you want to bring home to the court is in a footnote. And it's over 200 footnotes in your report. It's a very important footnote, but that's what you want to bring out as a major point. 
just stop and think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't say a word about it. I just I just let that kind of drop, like letting the shoe drop. Mm-hmm. And then everybody in that room went like, really? The most important part was back here on footnote 256. Mm-hmm. So if, if I was reading that, I might say, I think this is really important. You might want to put it here. You might even want to put a block on it. This is the important thing right here. Well, and it's interesting because you do a lot of mediation and so do I, not only as a mediator, but like as a business valuation expert in mediation. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because we had one recently and it's with a former judge and the former judge was like, and, and I mean, it just rang true to all of us. If you've done litigation, he was like, you know, we did a half day mediation and it was two or three big valuations. Each of them had their own issues, right? And he's like, in the past four hours, I literally know more about the issues, right? The big picture issues in all of these valuations than I would have understood after one full week of testimony. And I think that that really puts it in perspective is that yes, the judges, the attorneys, the valuation people, even the clients at some point understand the process. But when we come into mediation or you come into something like this, you're going to drill it down to the three biggest items. And and in some cases, we're not elaborating on that in the valuation because we're like, oh, you know, we just knew it. And, and everybody should know that that's a risk in that industry. Well, no, you can't make those assumptions. You have to elaborate. You have to continue to provide feedback. But that that judge was dead on because when we came into mediation, what did we do? Well, we had 5, 10, 15 minutes to give the 15 minutes to give the judge an overview of two valuations, three valuations, three different companies, right? And and we might have dealt with them one at a time, you know, depending upon the mediator, it, it's a different scenario. But the interesting part is, what did we do? What did we do when we came in for the first one? I gave him a she- cheat sheet. I didn't Absolutely. want, I don't even want him to read the whole valuation. Like I want the cheat sheet. Just here, judge, here's the cheat sheet. It's going to tell you. And in some cases, in those situations, I will show both parties positions, right? Here, judge, here's where we are. Here's where they are. Sometimes I then change their number to, you know, what I disagree with. But in in essence, I'm giving him a one-page takeaway, him or her. And he never looked at the actual reports, you know, because everybody had sent all of this stuff prior to, right? And he's like, I mean, I kind of looked at it, but like, can you just tell me what the big issues are? So if you're, ha- you know, like how many times do you have to be told that before you start saying, okay, I'm going to need the cheat sheet, even for your own edification, um, because that's what really got it kind of through the process. You know, I looked at a, a, an IRS review with opinion of value recently, and that critique identified about I don't know, 15, 20 things that they said, and this, this, I think this should be this, I think this should be that. They made a bunch of changes inside here. And I went back to my client and I said, now each one of these, figure out what the impact is on the valuation. Mm-hmm. And I'll say there were 15 variables. And of the uh, 15 different things were brought up. And of the 15, three of them, three of the items were 90% of the dollars. 
So we tend to think we have 15 things. We should focus on these 15 things. And I was back in, let's look at those big three. Are there things we can concede? So in fact, what we did, this is working with the estate and gift tax attorney now. We conceded half of the issues, mm -hmm. which amounted to about 10% of the value. Mm -hmm. But we conceded half of the issues. So the psychological impact of conceding half the issues, are we being reasonable? And then in the big three, we came back and said, we got to bolster those up. So we have to do more work to show why and why and why. It's not just because I said so. We want to be data-driven with those. So we did that. Okay, this is me working with my client on a negotiation now. This is not a mediation. And then when we came back, and again, the, the, uh, sometimes the state and gift tax attorneys know I'm there, and sometimes they don't. This is one they didn't know I was there. But with the state and gift tax attorney of the taxpayer, the state tax attorney for the taxpayer, they came in with, we want to show you this, this, and this. Here were things that we didn't bring up, we hadn't thought about, but since you asked us, we want to give that to you. That's that DLAM with the 33 factors and bringing in additional factors here. So the attorney said, that all seems pretty reasonable, you know, and I also appreciate that you're willing to work with me and you can see to these other things. So that was a very good negotiation technique, but it wasn't that we were going to fight all 15 items. So choose your battles wisely and where your resources need to be spent. Mm-hmm. Well, and I and I think that it's interesting because do you think that there's a threshold? You know, like do you think that an estate that's over 10 or 11 million um is the threshold with which we need to do some of these additional steps, kind of preventative steps? Um or do you think that it should be done on every? Because I feel like there's got to be some level of the estate of all the assets that this is really becomes a little bit more imperative. I think it's absolutely imperative for anybody that doesn't meet the exemption, which whatever that is right now, 11 million, 580,000 or something. Right. So absolutely above that, you a hundred percent. If you get into, uh, let's say less than a million dollars on a gift or an estate that's 5 million or less, it's still a very good idea. But you're, I gave you the probability of audits with the most recent data that we have. And if you're less than $5 million estate, chances of an audit are 2%. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, there's a risk reward analysis. I was at the ASA conference and I uh, listened to some pe people talking. I'm talking to people in the room and there was a, 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 a business valuer at his firm has 30 valuers working for it. And I'm talking to this partner and we listened to one of the presentations and I said, so are you going to change anything as a result of this? And he said, Actually, no, I just actually view this as part of a risk of what we do. And we're going to continue to do what we're doing. And even though that's the way we should be doing it, according to what that presenter just said, um, I'm willing to take that risk. So I think the probability of somebody making that issue with us on one of our appraisals, because in the, in the end, our appraisal is reasonable. Mm -hmm. So people who tax effect or don't tax effect on an S-Corp or make adjustments on different things or don't, in the end, the IRS doesn't critique your methodology, they critique your bottom line number. Mm -hmm. So I've seen appraisers, that they did all this wrong and it's way high, and they did all this wrong and that's way low, but they came in with a number that's reasonable. Yeah. And then I've heard, I've heard um, various promoters of models say, hey, we turned this in and the IRS accepted the model, they accept my model. Well, they don't accept anybody's model, just to, so we know, but they're looking to say, is your number reasonable? And when they might even approach it a different way, but if your number is reasonable to them, you're good. Well, and 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 I think that, you know, we've had a couple of states that come close to the exemption, right? 
And in some cases, we've even lowered the discounts, right? We've do we've done some things to mitigate the issues because I was like, why? Why do you, why does it even matter in order to take any sort of you know? And not that you're conservative or aggressive, but I think it's also communication with the client. So saying as the evaluator, I'm just going to take that risk. There's really no, you're, you're there to educate the client and the attorney of the risk and say, here's what, how I mitigated the risk, right? Um, either in writing and such like that. And here are some ideas of what you maybe should do to make sure that you have less risk, right? Now, if they decide not to do that, because I think you can pass off some of those expenses um, as well to the client. You know, you want somebody to review it. Here are the things that we've seen. Here are the reasons why we think your valuation, you know, could be looked at by the IRS. It's close to the exemption. You know, it's got some big pieces of, 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 you know, these, these privately held companies or something like that, that have all of these pieces to it. I think that that's really important. Um, I think we have just a few more minutes left. So I'm wondering if, um, we should kind of tell people more about how you get involved because you're really a great resource for the estate attorneys um, when they get this information or when somebody gets the IRS, um, you know, notification, right? Can you tell us more about kind of how people have gotten you involved towards the beginning, because this isn't something that you want to be like, oh, well, if we go to court, we'll, we'll hire Mike. No, that's not the time. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the best time is prevention. Prevention is the real key. And most of the time what happens is an appraiser will say, I've done these. I'm doing one right now for an appraiser. They're a specialist. They've done over 20 in a given market segment. Okay. And they said, I'm anticipating I'm going to expand on this with what I do is sell myself as I'm an expert in this area because I've done over 20 of these. But I want you to critique my report. And after I critique, and this person has got 15 years experience uh, in being an appraiser. So after I critiqued it, I came back with all this information. The person said, wow, I, you know, you brought up stuff I hadn't even thought about. And I'm going to do that on this report. But this company now has a, another one here too, Entity B. And on entity A, I paid for it myself. This appraiser paid for this review on my part themselves. And it cost, I'll say, around $3,000. So then I came back, and they're going to ask me to do this. And I said, I've done this with an appraiser recently, and we did six of them over about four months. And I said, the first one was eight hours. The last one was one hour. And now we're done. The person had a holding company in one. You know, these, they're all different types, 100% uh, control on one, had a, a gift with small percentages on another. And it was a matter of they all have different things that you want to be addressing. So the preventative part, it doesn't have to be me. There are other people who do this too. But I think work that right into your billing. So for this first one, uh, that appraiser I'm telling you about, and this most recent one, paid for that as they're out of their own pocket. But the second one, they went back to the same client. They're doing two of them. We're going to put that in the billing this time. Mm -hmm. So you have this because uh, it's worth it for you to have this done because it's a completely different type of entity here too. So, yes, I'll be doing that. And it, when you ask your client, is it worth it to you to spend, you know, X number of dollars, $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 for a review, not a free review, for a critique, for IRS purposes to reduce the probability of an audit? And the estate tax attorney doesn't want to revisit this again in a year or two years or three years. They want to 
clean slate and their client does too. So you, if you want to sleep better for three years, maybe it's a good idea to do that. And then if you're brought up on exam, we want to approach this with collaboration. You know all about the collaboration effect. We've talked about this. And it's about connecting relationships and listening actively to them and educating them the way they want to be educated so you can build bridges and negotiate closure. So I'm very much oriented as we want to approach this as a collaboration to come up with what's reasonable here. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that, you know, part of it is really interesting because, you know, a few thousand dollars, three to five grand to have somebody review it when, when they're, when an estate is doing 10 valuations, you know, there's already a significant cost involved with it. Why wouldn't you just do kind of the icing on the cake, right? Make sure. And reality is that, you know, even a valuation person working with you, like I'm thinking, shoot, I probably have to have you review some things too, because we get too far in the weeds. When you're doing five, 10 estate valuations, you're so far in into it that you really do need kind of an outside person to say, does this make sense? Did you mean to do it like that? You know, and it saves face, I think, for the valuation expert as well. You know, like we, that's the worst thing that you want to happen. Now, after this conversation, you make it not sound as horrific as it would be, right? Because there could be penalties applied if you um, were to do the valuation incorrect, the penalties could go back to the valuation expert. I mean, we do, there is some risk that we take on and some people feel that it's a greater risk than others. I get that. But this is just a way, I mean, if I, if I had you review it once, you would give me so many salient things that the reality is I should go and take those things and change my templates, right? And right. put them in so that it's just part of the process that we uh, determine. Um, and and I think a lot of people say, well, I do some of these things in my report. We get it. We understand. But are they hidden? Are they in footnote 256, mm -hmm. you know, and is that really going to be effective? And it's understanding when you have more of that risk. You know, if you have an estate that's 10, 11, 12, 15 million, and then above, obviously, but even in that threshold of where that exemption is, um, I think is a big, you know, like really, I think that that's an area that you want to be concerned with too, because that's the ones that we're doing a lot of. Of course, you get the billion dollar ones once in a lifetime, right? Maybe, maybe twice, <laughs> things and, like that. And I'm really pushing back on the weak narratives. I mean, you've talked with the, you've talked with the client, you've, you've done your valuation, you think you have a strong narrative. But then when I come back and look at the narrative, I'm looking to say, does that tie in with what you said on the growth rate? Does that tie in with the adjustments that you made? Does that tie in with where this firm is going in the future. You're valuing it today, but going forward. So does, do your numbers seem to make sense? Mm -hmm. And when a third person looks at this, you know it because you've been involved with the client. I've never talked to the client. I don't know anything about the client. Mm -hmm. But when I'm looking at it, I only know what I know. I only know the report. That's what the valuer has. That's what the IRS auditor has. Yeah. So I'm putting myself in the shoes of, I mean, I ask a lot of questions. I'm a mediator. I ask a lot of questions. When I'm, when I'm critiquing it, I'm asking a lot of questions. I, I don't know what this means. I, or can you can you explain that uh, in in lay language? And I might even I, this is where I might take the editor. I write lay language of what I think it should be, 
but I read the comment. I may not be right with what I wrote. Right. But I think it is from what I've read of what you've written, because yeah. you want to write this so that that agent says it's reasonable to me. I don't even need to get a valuer involved, and I've right. been reasonable with your analysis. I'm going to accept this thing. That's your goal. That's your yeah. goal. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your time. And um, hopefully this will give us a better idea of how to deal with the IRS and business valuations and audits and things like that. So thanks again. And uh, we'll see you soon. The key word there was collaboration. Yes. Take care. Love it. <laughs>